Hey everybody, welcome to the Cast. This is the podcast where we talk to people for and or from the Midwest, and we are brought to you by Jolly Good Soda. So this week, uh, I'm joined by Dan Egan. Now, Dan and I, uh, Deep Cut, we met back in... Shoot, when was it? When did the Packers lose to the Giants in London? Jeez, Louise, when was that? October. October. Colleen Maraca, <laughs> executive producer of the Cripes yeah. cast, coming in hot with the facts. <laughs> so, Colleen, I met Dan. Uh, he's a friend um, friend of the families. The Campbells are a friend of the families. Okay. okay? So, um, one of the... Uh, Scott and Tom. Okay. A to, friend of a friend of yeah. a friend, and then... So yeah. anyway, um, Dan is a friend of Scott's and, and we were out having a couple beers and, um, and then eventually, you know, I figured out he wrote these incredible books on the great lakes. Uh, he's got one out now, one that's coming out, but the one that, um, I read was, uh, the death and life of the great lakes, which is all about the invasive species in the great lakes and this and that. And you know, I'm a nerd for this stuff. I love it. Oh, and you know, I will say, I, I do regret a little bit in this interview, not going into Dan's story. And honestly, I want to have Dan back on when is he's got another book coming out on phosphorus and all. all yeah. The, I think it's out officially now. Oh, it is out officially so now. We Jeez. Yeah. We should go get that book so you can read it and oh, you guys can talk about it. Well, I have been reading it. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 It's, okay. it's great. I, but I started with this one cause I, I wanted to talk about this, but anyway, from an environmental perspective, I just kind of really nerded out a little bit on this <laughs> yeah, one with him. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, you know, I know there are a bunch of environmental junk junkies in the audience. You'll love it too. But I do, I would like to get Dan back on to really just talk about his story and how he became a writer. Cause he's this Milwaukee, um, Milwaukee-based writer, and uh, I'm sure he's got a really cool story. Yeah. I mean, there. yeah, he was talking to you about uh, doing this from the car because he was writing during the pandemic. Yes. And so, yeah, it just was like watching you guys on Zoom. You were just, I could tell you were geeking out. I just love this stuff. Um, And, and if you're not um, familiar with, you know, uh, the Great Lakes and the story behind the Great lakes it's you, you ever see those youtube videos with someone water skiing on uh the river on the mississippi river and all these carp are jumping mm -hmm. up there there's actually this show you can watch on tv where people go out with like bats and stuff and nets and they try and catch them super invasive we're not meant to be here and now they kind of have destroyed in a lot of ways the recreation created another recreation which is you know now carp, i know what you do killing. on the weekends Either i know watch carp killing well, or go carp killing well and the thing is is they're super invasive they're they're problematic to the ecosystem so it is the most appropriate thing to kill those fish i hate yeah. to say it but it's not just um uh, that it's also, you know, the alewives and the zebra mussels and all the, these things that have affected the Great Lakes mm -hmm. um, through the process of opening up uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway for uh, world trade, you know. And so you get uh, ocean water, that brackish water mixed with the... <laughs> You're looking at, stop, don't let your eyes glaze over I'm already, listening. Colleen. I'm listening. Oh, I'm super excited about <laughs> it. Anyway, I, I love this conversation we have. Um, Dan is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, which is huge. Two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's going to win soon, I guarantee you, though. I think but so. he is a winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, uh, which is another huge award. So, so excited to have Dan on. Um, and uh, yeah, again, he, he you mentioned that he was in the car. He was in the car over at the um, harbor in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. which is sort of where he first had this inspiration for this and where, as he said, during the 
you know, pandemic he was writing. Yeah, because um, uh, I think he said he needed the Wi-Fi and his everybody was home because his kids. So he would just like go camp out near a coffee shop and get the Wi-Fi to reach. And then such a Charlie move. That yeah. is. That's why <laughs> as soon as he did that, I was like, oh, shoot. Soon we're going to have like podcasts of you just in your car. Oh, I know. If I you know. do that. Ugh. I've He's done always. I've done stuff like that. I, I I'm also We're on a call today. I'm pretty sure you were in your car. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it's not a good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. Well, anyway, we're talking about Dan's books, the topics he's interested in. You know, lakes. I yeah. love it. I love it. Um. So oh, so yeah. Anyway, we we the, I'm so convoluted here, but we met in London initially, and then I saw him on the flight back, and we were chit chatting by the bathroom about it <laughs> poor you know? him you were just yakking his ear off uh, yeah we were yakking each other's ear off it okay. was a mutual yakking okay <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway that sounds weird but yeah. <laughs> all right your dad mentioned it at the cripes dinner um, oh did he yeah he said you should get dan on the podcast yeah. i don't think he realized we already recorded I, he so. didn't but we recorded this a bit ago and then now we're finally getting it out yeah That's we've kind, of, kind the... of had a backlog of of uh these great interviews it's been tough to sit on them oh so, yeah but charlie's super excited i'm super excited well let's get to it yeah you're doing this interview in the uh, most wisconsin way possible in the uh front seat of your car looks like yeah yeah are you in milwaukee it's kind of kind of cold out i am Mildly in milwaukee cold. are you I'm at, I'm at lake park uh bistro lake are park. You? yeah i uh I, I wrote a whole book in this parking lot <laughs> i was gonna say that's the most uh appropriate place to do it what you wrote you actually wrote the book there this phosphorus book yeah most of it um yeah, because I was doing it in the middle of COVID and I've got four kids and not a very big house. And then we got a COVID dog and my wife works for the DNR and she was working from home. So we have an extra minivan and I just uh, started taking it down to the park every day and old habits die hard. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the kids, are home. the kids don't have school today and my wife's working at home. So I ended up coming back here. Nice, nice. Did you go there uh, uh, to write it? Uh, It was sort of out of necessity, but you could have picked a million different spots along the Mm -hmm. lake to write it. And so why did you choose that? Oh, it's just a beautiful park. But I I have, you know, I I worked at the Journal Sentinel for a couple of decades and I made the break completely a couple of years ago. I mean, it's kind of complicated because I was working for UWM. The UWM was paying the paper, so I was technically employed by the paper. But anyway, I bring this up because I didn't, I haven't been going into an office for probably four or five years, and I picked up some pretty weird work habits um, with the Great Lakes book. One time I was headed down to UWM, I live up in Whitefish Bay on the bus, and I just got sucked into something, and I just kept riding the bus. I thought, oh, I'll just take it all the way out to the airport. And I got to the airport. And they have those massage chairs. They don't yeah. have many, but I was like, "This is, <laughs> this is perfect." So I, um, I set myself up in the massage chair and started going there two or three times a week. And I didn't really mention it to my wife because she didn't really need to know. <laughs> but uh, one time she called, and you know, there's the airline voice, you know, going over the announcements, and she's like, "What the hell?" And I'm like, "Well, I, I go down to the airport sometimes, especially in the winter, because it's got that atrium. It's well lit." Yeah, yeah. And she's like, "All right, you know, just don't get on a plane." And then I was like, 
That's not a bad idea either. But, um, yeah, How far so are we going to take this spy experience? <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, I've been working in 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 weird places. Like the the newsroom was never really a comfortable place to to write and work, but that made you you got comfortable with it. So um, I don't mind putting myself in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation because it can help you concentrate. So yeah, that that is uh, interesting finding. Um sort of the uh the ways into the mind like there there's sometimes where i if i'm stuck on something uh i have to literally um i remember this one time i was starting a new tour and i had probably like 40 minutes of material i need another 20 minutes of material and it was like the last night and i just was i was walking right along the lake shore right along the park by the big red um big red lighthouse you know yeah and yeah, yeah. while i was walking i wrote like like I wrote that bit, you know, which was like giving me hell for like, I don't know, like a week, you know, but it was, it was that idea of moving or doing something different than just sitting there staring at a screen, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is your, you've written, um, extensively about, um, the great lakes about the damage humans have done to it. And, um, and you, 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 where did all this like start? Where'd this fuel come from in your life? Was there a moment from your childhood where you became sort of dedicated to journalism and environmentalism or has it always mm -hmm. sort of been brewing? Well, I kind of had a moment almost at the same place that, that you had yours down on the lakefront. So I, I was born in Green Bay and went to high school there, went to college over in Michigan and, um, after college, headed out west, and I went to uh, Sun Valley, Idaho first, and that's I got a job at the newspaper out there. And from there, I went to Idaho Falls and then Salt Lake City, and it took about 10 years. And then uh, we had our first kid and kind of felt the tug of home, so I took a job at the uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and I was a feature writer when they hired me, and one of the first uh, stories I did uh, came from a walk along along the lakefront with my daughter, who was like, she she was like barely a year old, and so I'd been out in Idaho covering all these natural resource issues, which I wasn't trained to do. I, I had a degree in history, I just kind of learned on the job, but I learned a lot about uh, salmon living in Idaho, and so we moved back here. I moved back here with a little trepidation because I, I really liked the West and the openness and the mountains and the sunshine in the winter. Um, but I also like the culture of Wisconsin and my family's here and I've learned to really love Milwaukee. Put that aside, I'm walking with my daughter and it's, it's uh, salmon spawning season mm -hmm. in Milwaukee and all the fish were coming into McKinley Marina um, to spawn. And so I remember having this feeling like, wow, you know, at least they're not counting salmon on single hands. I mean, in, in Idaho, there's the sockeye, Snake River sockeye salmon. And the first year I was covering them, one fish made it back to its spawning grounds at Redfish wow. Lake. And uh, they were using, they were just, it's still on life support, the whole program. They, they just stripped it of its milt and put it into a captive breeding program. And so I, it was kind of nice when I was down at the lake with my daughter thinking, well, she's going to grow up in a place where there's oodles of salmon. I didn't know much about the history of the salmon stocking program and how it's really pretty much a, an artificial fishery. But some of the fishermen uh, that day, you know, I said, what are they doing? They were like thinning their way up the boat ramps, <laughs> you know, like always swimming upstream, you know, it's really weird. 
you know, said, are they spawning? They're like, oh, they don't spawn. They're just born to be caught. You know, it's a, it's a, a catch and what do they call put and take, um, <clears throat> largely. I mean, that's oversimplifying it. But I went back to the newsroom and I mentioned this to my editor, who actually also happened to be from Green Bay, and he said, well, everybody knows the history of the salmon program, and he's ten years older than I am. I'm 55 now, but I was probably 35 then, so he was 45, and people 45 and under were really too young to re to 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 understand what happened to the lakes in the 50s and 60s. So um, he kind of poo-pooed it, and I kept thinking about it, and I went back to him a few weeks later and said, well, why don't we do like a big feature story on you know just the history of the salmon program? And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you got to start at the beginning. Like, what were the lakes like before whites? arrived and and that launched me on this great lakes episode of era in my uh career so yeah and um that book um which i've been reading over the past uh couple weeks um it just does a fantastic job of showing i mean you know as the title suggests the death and the life of the great lakes but we have this incredible natural resource one of the most unique on the planet and um you know eventually it gets opened up through the saint lawrence seaway to greater commerce and connecting um it to the rest of the world that you know people got caught up thinking like you know we chicago could be not the second city but the first city because the only reason people go to new york is they have to stop there you know that that being the thought process but we see uh really in this book kind of a microcosm for almost every environmental issue even the ones going on today with climate change is that people will uh trade near-term short-term economic gain or the prospect of it for the health of something long-term sometimes intentionally and sometimes because they do not know the consequences of the things that they do yeah. um and did you in doing that that was a long lead up to my question did you find do you believe that people do adverse economic things um largely in spite of the consequences that they know will happen or do they not know the full impact the full consequences of what they do that's a that's a good question and it's probably both i mean there's trade-offs to everything if we're going to have a civilization we're going to have to grow food and we're going to have to chop down some trees to you know create these pastures there's there's always going to be a cost to to any kind of economic enterprise right but i think things really got out of hand in the great lakes back in the, the 50s and the 60s you know i mentioned i grew up in green bay and the fox river the northeastern wisconsin fox river flows right through the heart of green bay and that is one of the most industrialized river corridors that you'll find anywhere. I mean, at one point, I think it had like 25 or 30 uh, paper or pulp mills on the riverbanks between Appleton and, and Green Bay. And so I was born in 1967, well before the Clean Water Act uh, kicked in. And, you know, when I was huck finning down by the, the, the shoreline or the riverbank as a kid with my friends and brothers, uh, you know, my parents, we, we, they were horrified. And it wasn't that they were worried that they're eight-year-old, nine-year-old kids were going to drown. It's that we were going to just get poisoned. And, you know, it was like playing at the dump. We used to pick little nuggets of sulfur off the riverbank in De Pere, Wisconsin, and uh, bring it home and light it like some kind of low-grade firework because it would 
melt and ooze and it just stunk like sulfur and you know it was like i remember thinking wow this is nature's bounty yeah <laughs> golden clumps along the riverbank and it's actually a byproduct of the pulp making process and so yeah it was you know uh environment be damned in northeastern wisconsin for years and years and years and what we've we've demonstrably turned a corner when you you know you i don't know if you've ever seen these pictures of like walleye derbies uh in, in, on the fox river just below the Deepier dam you could walk across the river there which is probably a quarter mile wide just on boats i mean there's just and, and that yeah. was not the case back in 1978 or whenever i was mucking around down there so i don't know if i answered the question but you know i i do think it's we we know that there's consequences we i don't think we always grasp them and you know it, that's human nature and but i think with the, the the damning thing is is once we realize what we're doing and we keep doing it or doing do more of it um that's when you that's when you you know get a little dispirited because like with this great lakes book i tried not to to paint any villains, I tried to put everybody in their context and the decisions they were making at the time. And they, you know, they made sense. But um, at some point, you know, it became clear that the seaway, which opened up the Great Lakes to all manner of invasive species and biological mischief. Once we realized what was happening there and, and we we weren't doing anything or, or enough to stop it, that's when some fingers can start to get pointed. And, you know, that's what journalism does. And so... Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of um, just to set this up for the audience who may not um, have read um, the book or may not know much of anything of this. Um, can you just give a brief synopsis of the um, St. Lawrence Seaway and what impact opening it up had on um, the uh, a body of water, that being the Great Lakes, that holds 20 percent of the world's fresh water? Yeah. So. So when you look at a map or a globe, you you see this blob in the middle of North America, which is the blue blob, the Great Lakes. And then there's like this tendril stretching out to the North Atlantic, and that's the St. Lawrence Seaway. So on a map or a globe, it looks like there's a straight shot from the East Coast into the middle of the continent. And there was for things moving out of the lakes, but things couldn't move into the lakes because that river flowing out to the ocean in its natural state was just a torrent. And anything that could swim in from, you know, Eastern, Far Eastern Canada, once it got to, it would be smooth sailing once until you got to Niagara or to um, Montreal, and then the rapids start. And then if you were to even make it up the, the river in its wild state, you'd hit a wall literally at Niagara Falls. So these ponds, <laughs> these oversized ponds, these great lakes, in a real way, we're as isolated from the rest of the aquatic world as like a, a Northwoods pond, spring-fed pond, because nothing could come in. On the, on the backside, uh, there was, they call it a subcontinental divide, but there was a hump in the landscape which separated the waters of the Mississippi from the Great Lakes. So there was a front door and a back door that we opened. The front door would be the St. Lawrence Seaway, and what that really was was just taming the river and building a system of locks. To, so, so it was like a giant uh, nautical uh, elevator for huge boats. It's a lift system to bring them up and around Niagara Falls and onward to Chicago, Duluth, Milwaukee, pick your city. Um, the problem was, and then and we, we opened up the biggest, most recent version of the St. Lawrence Seaway in 1959, 
was that these boats carried with them in their ballast tanks, when ballast tanks are used to steady boats on the open ocean if they're not completely balanced, and they're never really completely balanced or rare, rarely with their cargoes. So it's like, um, it's a navigation management tool that's critical. If it goes wrong, I have an example in the book of a of a passenger boat in Chicago just rolling over, just and, and killed like, it's the Eastland disaster, killed like 800 people. So ballast water is like, it's like wing flaps for a plane, <laughs> they're essential. Um, but they're not, the, the water isn't dead weight. It's carrying up, carrying whatever these ships might have picked up anywhere on the globe and then dropping it in the lakes. And because the lakes are relatively new, they're only about 10,000 years old, which is just a tick of the clock, geologically speaking, uh, and isolated, they really had no defense system built in. So all these, it just so happened that the Caspian Sea, the Caspian Sea Basin is a very, very old uh water system and it's got extreme swings in, in temperature and salinity and even water levels so it's I, I used to like to think about it when i was trying to explain it to somebody who doesn't like reading about ecology and i might be one of those people from time to time <laughs> yeah. but it's like it's like uh the caspian sea is like the sec if you can if you can win the sec you're gonna go to town and if you can make it in the caspian sea and then you get out and you you take on another water body system you're going to do pretty well. And that's unfortunately what happened with the Great Lakes. That's how we got zebra mussels and quagga mussels um, and round gobies. And, um, oh gosh, I can't remember. But the, a bunch. But nothing's been more disruptive than 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 the zebra and quagga mussels. Yeah, and I think everybody who's swam in uh, Wisconsin Lakes knows about them. They're the small, um, hard muscles that attach to everything that cut your foot. Um, I remember, you know, growing up taking the dock out in Lake Winnebago uh, at my grandparents' uh, deal, and <clears throat> every stanchion of pier was full of, of them. You know, you're walking around, you cut your uh, your feet on them. They're just they're on everything. You pull muscles up there on those. So. Um, yeah, let me just jump in real quickly. Yeah. Gets to the, the the economic question that you just asked. So, you know, you think about that, um those muscles weren't there in in the uh 80s. They didn't they didn't really show up in the Lake Michigan area until late 80s, early 90s. And then they spread inland. Um and so you think about you can no longer swim at your grandparents off your grandparents' dock unless you wear aqua socks or you just don't swim or you know, you get used to I've talked to a lot of people who've got infections and, you know, they have to take antibiotics. So this is a real cost to everyday people that is just vast. I mean, it, it's across the whole Great Lakes and beyond. I mean, these muscles are now found in 30 some states in, in the U.S. Um, but the, it's so diffuse and dispersed. So just what you're talking about right there has a cost. You would have a hard time quantifying it. But now extrapolate that out to the 30 million people who live in the Great Lakes Basin. At the same time, the shipping industry, which benefits very much from this, it's very, very small. But but the what the the economic rewards are huge. So they have a real incentive to keep the status quo, while all of us are just kind of you know walking around with bloody feet and just thinking this is just the cost of doing business. So that that just reminded me when you when you're bringing up your story, thinking, yeah, these are economic costs that don't get tallied often enough. Well, um, and <laughs> Yeah, and I almost think the zebra mussel is like, 
I mean, it's, I said microcosm before, but I'll say again, it's a microcosm for, you know, what we deal with. And the story you wrote is, is sort of a, a it shows how we deal with environmental concerns, period, in this world. Like, I think the best example is you were talking about Lake Mead and how the muscles have been, were clogging um, the, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but the muscles were clogging the, um, the filtration or the draining in Lake Mead causing uh, multi really billions of dollars over time in damage. Um, and the reason those are there is because of this ballast uh, water that they ask these ships to, you know, it, it's kind of like when you take a boat out from a boat landing, they ask you to like make sure there's no invasive species on it before putting in another thing. They ask these big um ships to change their ballast water with the salt water that doesn't contain all as many of these and if they didn't do it the fine was three thousand dollars three grand or something like that meanwhile you're talking multi billions of dollars of damage and a three thousand dollar fine and um and and so, you know, we, we checked we, we checked these freighters as they come in up the St. Lawrence Seaway <clears throat> at Lake Mead and Lake Powell in Nevada and, and Utah. They check boaters as they go to these boat go to the boat ramps. And you know, if if you've been in a state that's infested, they demand that you get the hull scrubbed with a scalding water. They were they were um washing uh swimming noodles when I was there, you know, because the spores for these muscles could get in there. And people who dodged these checkpoints, there was like this jet skier. He lived in Page, Arizona. Everybody knew that his jet ski never left Page, Arizona. It wasn't going to go over to the Caspian Sea and pick up some mussels. Um, he got caught avoiding one of the checkpoints to, I think it was Lake Powell, and he got like a $5,000 fine compared to a ship that can hold millions of gallons of water and has been over, you know, to the Caspian Sea Basin. They get a $3,000 fine. It just, that's... That's what it just doesn't make sense. And that's, I guess, the role of journalists is to just open people's eyes. Yeah, I mean, because I, I continue to feel like we as people are just paying the price for, um, you know, bigger uh, companies who can just afford to make and create anything from PFAS to phosphorus, as you know, you, you talk, we'll get to in a second. But these these big um, high dollar things, it's it's almost like they're like, let's make as much money as we can. And sometimes even having the information that this is detrimental to people or these chemicals never go away or whatever. And then by the time the laws and and our buddies in uh, political offices will stop, you know, can't do anything and people will finally point to us, we'll have made billions and then we'll pay millions in fines. You know, so it's almost like a business model, which is the most frustrating um, thing for, you know, someone like me who's just watching it. Yeah, 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 I agree. And, you know, the shipping industry is doing a lot more than they were at the time that I, I wrote the book. And, you know, I wouldn't ever want to see the boats completely go away unless unless the problem, you know, kicks up again. We start getting different types of invasive species. Then I think, and it's tricky because we, we manage and own the St. Lawrence Seaway and the, the channels and locks and canals with Canada. So, you know, we can't just unilaterally although we might be able to um, just shut the door. But yeah, I mean, I, there, it is frustrating when you just see this wanton abuse 
just go unchecked and then and then when people figure out the extent of the problem it's the people who are left to pay for it and that's a drag well and if the st lawrence seaway really um made the economic impact they thought it would i think it's almost like an easier argument but isn't it true that you know that as soon as they started opening up the St. Lawrence Seaway, there were rules in place to not have it be wider so certain uh, ships could not get in there, they were thereby limiting its economic viability? Or did I... Um, yeah, yeah, it? no, that's pretty much it. <clears throat> I mean, what happened was the East Coast did not want to spend, I forgot what it cost, but it was, it was uh, if it wasn't a billion dollars, it was close to it. And this is in 1950 dollars. They didn't want the competition from Chicago, as you were mentioning earlier, or any of the other Great Lakes cities. They they didn't feel the need to have a port in the middle of a system of ports in the middle of the continent. They were happy to receive these goods and then ship them around the rest of North America. So they lobbied to keep the seaway small when when it was built. And then coincidentally and unfortunately, right when they were breaking ground on it, the first container ships started to sail. And those demanded bigger and bigger boats. So what we're left with really is kind of a narrow gauge railroad. It's just this quirky little, like the, the boats are huge when you see them. They're, you know, 800 feet up, almost 800 feet long and 80 feet wide. But but they're tiny, you know, compared to, to modern, modern shipping. And they, another problem with the seaway is ice. You know, shipping demands just-in-time delivery these days. And you can't have a real viable... Uh, navigation channel corridor for finished products if it's not going to be open 12 months a year because if, you, if you're trying to get sony's into chicago via ship getting a great deal on it nine months a year well the three months that you can't sail these sony's in <clears throat> the railroads are going to kill you on the costs they're going to be like okay now you're going to pay and it works that way not just for finished products but for you know components of of things so what the Seaway really does right now is it, it 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 takes our grain out around the world and it brings in primarily uh, imported steel, which we can make here. Right, so. right, and and so that's sort of the the tale, um, a very super abridged tale of um, the Great Lakes. <laughs> Everybody, excuse this quick interruption, but I just want to thank the great sponsors of the Cripes cast, including our title sponsor, Jolly Good Soda. My buddy Billy Deuce is coming into town <laughs> and he loves him some Jolly Good Soda. So you bet I went to the to the uh, grocery store and I got a, a pallet of it for Billy, Billy Deuce. And I uh, obviously got some for myself too. Love that Jolly Good Soda made right here in Wisconsin. Support local businesses, support Jolly Good Soda. You can find their stuff at jollygoodsoda.com. Also, want to thank Duluth Trading Company. Uh, they've been so supportive to us over the years. It's a great Midwest company. Their stuff is awesome. I wear it pretty much every day. Uh, great boxers. I don't talk about the boxers enough, but they got these. You talk about it more than enough. Do we I? We don't need to go into oh, yeah. okay. They're awesome. They're okay. awesome. And they've got uh, so many different kinds. They've even got like a, a, a organic cotton one, you know, which is good if you're just chilling, hanging around the house, you know, and then they've got some for, you know, when you're working out or when you're out hiking, like sweat wicking, you know, think sweat. So you got to have a uh, check it out. DuluthTrading.com. Finally, folks, Valentine's Day is coming up. Make sure you go to Cripescast.com 
or mantowalkman.com. Click on that merch section and get some Valentine's Day stuff. And guess what? The first hundred folks who order 75 bucks or more. Oh my gosh. Guess what? Guess what? You get a signed Valentine from yours truly. Wow. I know. I, Jeez you know, Louise. don't say I never did nothing for Aww. you guys, but we got a lot <laughs> of great stuff, including a new Oak cribbage board and these Oak bottle openers. Tell your folks, uh, I says hi hats. I survived the Midwest goodbye bumper stickers. Watch out for deer. What better way to say I love you than watch out for deer? There is no better way. And a bunch of other stuff. Check it out, mandowalkmint.com or cripescast.com. And that is it for the ad reads, folks. Let's get back to the show. Bye-bye. I just want to kind of uh, pivot because you also mentioned it in that book, but then you wrote an entire um, other book on phosphorus, um, the devil's element. What What is uh, phosphorus and where do we find it? So phosphorus is like... There's, and I'm not a chemist or a biologist, but there, there are really three critical uh, nutrients to a modern crop growing, and it's uh, potassium, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And since, 19, since the early 1900s, we've figured out how to pull the nitrogen that we want and need out of, out of the air. It's the Haber-Bosch process. Potassium deposits are, are common in old seabeds, dried up seabeds. And there's plenty of them. And phosphorus is, is the bugaboo here because it's mostly tied up in rocks that are sedimentary rocks that are really just basically piles of old dead life. And, and so these rock deposits rich in phosphorus fuel our modern agriculture system. And uh, we're starting to run low on them in the U.S. And, and in other places around the globe. And they're not spread evenly around the globe. And so like 80% of the remaining phosphorus deposits, uh, proven reserves are in Morocco and the occupied territory of Western Sahara. And this is gonna become a bigger deal as the decades click along here in this century and it could lead to some real instability. But phosphorus, I mean, the rocks weren't always the only place we got phosphorus. Um, early on, we were using bones. Like I, for this book, I went over to Waterloo one of the days that I wasn't in my minivan. Right? Yeah. I made it to Belgium. And um, the battlefield of Waterloo, I think 40,000 people died in, in 11 hours or something. And, uh, and the horses. And so a lot of bones piled up on that field that isn't a whole lot bigger than a couple of golf courses. It's just amazing to see. Uh, but there are no, no bones there. And there haven't been any there since like the 1830s because the English went over after the battle and stripped all the bones and ground them up in these special mills that they built and used it as crop fertilizer. They didn't know why it worked, but it turned out it was phosphorus in the bones because phosphorus is in every single cell on earth. Every, every living organism needs phosphorus and it doesn't go away when the organism dies. It, as we found out, it gets piled up in these sedimentary rocks, but um, any, any living thing can you know be a great fertilizer almost any living thing for for the next generation it's the circle of life you know? yeah that's um my, my grandpa bob would go uh fishing in like winnebago and was notorious for he hated catching sheep's head uh just because mm -hmm. you know kid growing up at that when he was growing up it was all about the walleyes and any sheep's head was just a problem for the walleyes so he'd keep them and he'd bury them in his garden and that's why he had these massive pumpkins i think <laughs> yeah know? yeah yeah, I know it's the, this whole thing, the whole story of phosphorus really is 
this it's the circle of life and then we crack that circle and turn it into a straight line with these minds and so we're just pumping you know an enormous amount of phosphorus into the living world and that's you know overdosing our farmlands and it's ending up in our waters and that's why we get these toxic algae blooms all over the place like in lake mendota you know you see that sitting on that patio uh of the um the, uh, the terrace, terrace. Yeah, yeah yeah over at the terrace yeah 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 and you know there's a dock and you know at least in my mind i remember seeing like um maybe a lifeguard there but very few people especially as you progress into july and august are going into that water because it's goop too many days unless the winds are really kicking up and stuff but that's it's goop and that's from that's coming from from farms coming from the phosphorus running off of farm fields in the form of excess chemical fertilizer or you know to a large extent dane county manure so and is what what is sort of the um you know we have we have two things going on here we have one currently that um the runoff from these is creating these dead zones is creating like a lot of um uh, I mean, you kind of see it even to when you're like, um, just you see a small pond. It looks like you can walk right over it almost. You know, it looks yeah, like it's yeah. a, the green of a golf course. Golf courses also contribute to this. Yes. Um, it, what what are the contributors? Farms, uh, but what other uh, things can contribute to increased phosphorus? Well, you know, it's mostly farms. I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, so when we got the clean water act in 1972 that really you know cracked down on in industry dumping whatever it wanted into the public waters but there was an exemption so they call that in, in regulatory par regulatory parlance uh, uh point source solution anything with a smokestack or a pipe you can plug or put on equipment to scrub with you know the the pollution in that waste stream but they gave agriculture a pass because it's so diffuse. It's just like you can't really squeegee farm field of its <laughs> of its pesticides and, and excess nutrients, you know. So so it's just going to do what everything does, and that's flow downhill. And unfortunately, downhill means in this region, the Great Lakes, and and that's also a drinking water source for 30, 40 million people. So it, there's no simple solutions, but we we are giving agriculture uh, largely a pass and you know as these farms get bigger and bigger people think the problem's becoming bigger and bigger and more unmanageable but you could also make the argument that it's becoming less of a non-point source i hate to use those words but uh it's becoming more like a classic industry with a big sewage lagoon that that you can you can get your hands on this now and treat it and they're starting to do that you know they're starting to strip methane out of some of the big dairies up in mm. northeastern Wisconsin, and and there's no reason they can't get at the the nitrogen and the phosphorus that's in that waste stream as well, and and repackage it and reuse it and try to stitch this circle of life back together a bit. It's largely an agriculture problem. Oh, so uh, what would be like for let's say I mean we have farmers that listen to this podcast. What would be some ways that they can uh, help uh, with the phosphorus? problem themselves well there's a you know for years and years the these fertilizers were relatively cheap they're getting more expensive and they, they could get really expensive with what's going on in ukraine and whatnot but um it was like an insurance policy for for farmers to put down more than they needed just in case um 
and and the consequences were you know followed water so and then and not the farmers i don't want to disparage them they're just operating in the system that we've set up kind of like the shipping industry until we, you know we figure out the problem then it's then it's on the public it's on an informed public to demand regulations and regulations don't kill industry i mean you look at I mentioned the Fox River and how heavily industrialized it was. Well, it still is, but there's fish in it now, and people are fishing for them. Uh, the regulations kind of, if they're applied appropriately, just you know, it's, it creates an even field. So maybe we end up paying more for milk if, if we start regulating farms more heavily. But we're we're already paying the price of cheap milk and not being able to swim in these ponds or these lakes like Mendota. That's a, that's a real cost and it's not assessed. It's not on any ledger anywhere, but it's a, it's a huge cost. So, you know, there are a lot of farmers doing everything they can, but collectively to everything they can to, you know, be good stewards of the land. And, and they don't you talk to any farmer. They don't see themselves as some kind of marauding, you know, black-hatted dudes there they know landscapes in the land better than anybody and they, you know they've got some real real knowledge there but but they haven't been forced to treat their their pollutions their pollution stream as for what it is which is just you know a heavy duty pollutant and that's that's when it's on an informed citizenry to lean on their lawmakers their representatives to get better regulations so yeah this is i mean it, it's tough man in in both you know both books that that you wrote you have first of all with the great lakes you have invasive species which i mean you, like you say in the book you can see an oil slick you can't see um the the mussels at the bottom of the, maybe if you're swimming in them you're like oh it's a muscle but it's alive and it's doing well and you're like this isn't bad but it's this living breathing oil slick you know and in, in the case of phosphorus it's um you know it becomes this thing of like oh 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 you're one of those well we're we're farmers we're we're doing our best to do the uh thing and what's what's so bad it's it's uh it's a natural process you know sometimes you get a little more nutrients in the lake this is what happens you know it's I think it's easy, it's a difficult mind process to sort of wrap your head around these living things create these other ecological problems. It's it's just not an intuitive thing for humans to say this is a problem, you know? Yeah, no, it's that's one of the things that I talk about in that Great Lakes book a lot is it's a biological pollution. And that doesn't make it any less noxious than anything you can imagine, any kind of industrial excrement coming out of a pipe into the Cuyahoga River in the 1960s. You know, it, it is a, a real pollutant. And again, like, it's the, the farmers are just operating in the system that has been set up. And and the system is not working, you know, manifestly. So when you just look at Lake, Lake Erie and, and, you know, Toledo lost its drinking water source because of toxic algae, because of phosphorus, because of runoff from farmlands primarily for back in 2014 for like, I don't know, it was like three or four days for uh, half a million people. And, you know, the water was too poisonous to drink and you couldn't boil it to make it safe because that only concentrated the toxin. And the toxin was a completely natural phenomenon, but that doesn't mean that it's not really, really bad stuff. And so, yeah, um, there aren't simple answers here. And if I have any goal with this phosphorus book is just to get people to start seeing 
that, you know, we really do need to manage this as best we can as a circle. Just recycle it. Just keep using it over and over again because it doesn't stop fertilizing when it leaves a farm field. It, it'll just grow stuff that we don't want. And this algae is, is really toxic. Yeah, yeah. So it's... Um... It, it, it is you, you you're kind of putting it out there to um, almost say what solutions or methods can we come up with to make this um, more sustainable do you have like wh where where is farming gonna go you know as our climate changes um, you know I've got a, a lot of friends that are farmers I mean they've seen they are changing their methods to get the same yields and they're not saying it they know it's not going to be sustainable at least the the uh, fellows i'm thinking about right now and they're wondering what are they going to do now are we going to take this indoor um growing is it going to be like greenhouse type ground? where do you see it going i don't know i, I really i i i'm not a big thinker when i'm not writing a book <laughs> oh, okay yeah um no, I mean, I'm saying that kind of facetiously, but I, I really don't know. But I do know that that our relationship with milk has changed a lot, you know, um, and this is as anecdotal as you can get. But like my kids don't they, they drink oat milk, which, you know, I, that's great. That's great for them. But it's just a different world, because when I was growing up, I drank I drank milk like it was, you know, softer. Yeah. 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 It didn't even have flavor after a while. You know, it was just <laughs> drink. Um, yeah. But, we, you know, we, we the, the whole modern agriculture system is so twisted with the farm bill and the subsidies. And, you know, there's I, I don't have the number in front of me, but there was like some vast amount of cheese in stored in warehouses all over the country because we put it into these blocks of like Velveeta type cheese mm -hmm. to preserve the milk. Um, Cause otherwise it's going to go bad because we're making more milk than people are consuming. I mean, and, and that's a episodic problem. It doesn't, it's not always the case, but it's the case often enough that, you know, that's where they used to, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, they, the government cheese, the stuff that, you know, they would just give out as just kind of a, a form of welfare. They don't do that so much anymore, but, I don't know how they manage this, this stockpile of cheese, but it's clear that we've we've often got more milk than we need. And and back during uh, the pandemic, the lockdown, they were just they were just dumping milk in, into into the fields and letting it wash into the lakes. It was nuts. Yeah, I mean that, and that was an issue of um, I had some people on the podcast talking about that that was more uh i believe an issue of you couldn't f you had to get it to a um a packet uh, i forget the process but the next line in that uh yeah they were gone so you you really had no option there no no um, they didn't it wasn't there it wasn't their fault at all it was just the idea that you know like cows don't stop producing manure just because you know there's not enough truckers to take it to you know landfill right um, they don't stop producing milk and so yeah there was a choke point in the flow there and it ended up with milk on the fields which which is a, it, it's a bummer any way you look at that yeah um so when it comes to like active um because we are not we need farming and we're not going to um, stop doing it, really. I, I think culturally speaking, especially in Wisconsin, uh, yeah, I think milk has waned a little bit. I don't know if cheese, you know, is going to have the same um, 
fate, I suppose. Um, but is there a, a way that you see us doing um, the farming sustainably with phosphorus at all, or are we going to have yeah, to well, find yeah, we, another? No, no, no. We definitely, we can't live without, without the phosphorus. It's just, we, we've got to set up a system where instead of it just so often running, running off the farms into the streams down into the lake and poisoning the lakes, it gets captured along the way. And that's where, you know, we're talking about uh, these people call them mega farms and, you know, the, the regulators call them concentrated animal feeding operations, but these supersized dairies, those are, those aren't, you know, a lot of environmentalists just get a knee jerk, like that's bad. And it's bad in, in every, in every way. And I think of it as like, well, no, that's good. Now that they've really got a bunch of manure in a, in one place in these lagoons, and now they can start doing something with it and something being turning it into to methane. And I think I was reading in the journal Sentinel a week or two ago that there's some new technology coming out of uh, University of Wisconsin Oshkosh where they're going to be turning it straight into to like uh, jet fuel. And so wow. the stuff the stuff is not you know if if, if earlier generations could look at a pile of bones and see riches or food on the table, we should be able to do that on a grander scale with these giant sized farms. So that's one area where I see, you know, there's opportunity for everybody to move forward in a way that, you know, keeps everybody fed. And Yeah. And yeah. That, that is interesting though, when you, cause you know, on the environmental movement, everyone looks at KFOs and they, they are saying that they're bad, but you're right. If you can get them into a place now, if you can get them into this place and then uh, somehow uh, convince them to spend the extra money. But uh, the, the truth of it is, is as a farm grows and can take care of their stuff, uh, they do have the ability to reinvest to make things more efficient. And I think the tipping point there will come when the, uh, the thing that's developed uh, to help streamline the phosphorus or, or do it, it is when that's also an economic um incentive for them as well as an environmental incentive yeah absolutely i mean you know farmers they're they're they work their tails off and they're yeah. not getting rich and they don't do it you know they, they they do it because that's that's what they love and you know it's such a rich part of our cultural <clears throat> heritage and you don't and there's a bunch of them it's not like there's a few shippers there's a i mean you're you're really getting at the fabric of wisconsin here and um, I'm in no means trying to disparage, you know, the work that they do. I just think that the system that's been set up right now isn't sustainable, and it would be hard to argue that it is. And when I say sustainable, I mean economically, but also critically environmentally, because, you know, once these lakes get this this goop in it, it's it really is it's well, it's death for dogs. It can be, and it, it's they they become largely useless to to humans. So there, there's costs to, to, to farming better, um, but but there's tremendous benefits as well. Yeah, it's almost, and I, I kind of, you know, kind of just want to take it more broadly here now for, um, for sort of the last end of this. Um, but we have so many environmental issues, you know, going on around uh, the world, whether it be climate change or phosphorus invasive species, this and that. And I don't think that, um, I think we've done enough uh, case studies to find out that people, by and large, uh, it takes them a while to care. But if there's some like 
the thing that gets people really going is if somehow you can creatively see the the net result you want and find some sort of economic solution to get there that's going to go light years faster than because it's the right thing to do or whatever if yeah you know and i almost think like for environmentalists listening to this um uh i mean this is the way i've been trying to think and i'm just curious your thoughts on it like like instead of spending so much time trying to get people to care about climate change maybe putting um some of that time into figuring out how do we pull the carbon out of the uh out of the atmosphere but at the same time as i'm saying that doesn't make much sense because the best thing we can do do is just not put it out there to begin with you know it's just it's so hard to get people to care i guess is is the point yeah it is and to get to get people to change too like one of the problems and this is an intractable problem as far as i'm concerned and i'm part of it and and that's our diets and you know meat meat is just it demands a lot of energy inputs and and fertilizer inputs and you go to these conferences and you hear these academics who make their lives work all about sustainable farming and phosphorus management and you know they say it's it's really going to take a cultural change in in the way our relationship with meat and, and what that's a gentle way of saying not so much not so many hamburgers and brats and steaks you know in our future and that's a you know that's a tough sell and i don't know how how we get around that and with with developing nations you know getting increasingly wealthy they're only naturally going to want similar diets or something more meaty. And, and so that's just going to compound the, uh, the pressures on the, the system that is already not holding up so well. And I really, I don't know what the answer to that is. Although I, I guess I kind of see it in my little anecdote here with my kids and their oatmeal. Um, they're not doing it for any kind of political or economic reasons. They just, they just developed a taste for it early on, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not banking on uh, the rest of America's Dairyland coming along with that. Yeah, soon. I think as soon as you said oat milk, people were like, "Oh, oat milk, jeez, <laughs> yeah." Well, but- I tease my kids. I'm like, "Have you ever seen this stuff made? You know, they have to milk those poor oats." Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it is. Um, it is something that you know in Wisconsin. I mean, it brats cheese all that stuff milk um it's so ingrained and entwined in this culture i don't know how that or when that you know there will come a time if we keep on this trajectory we just won't have the resources for any of it as as humans you know i mean it's just not going to happen so is there a way that you see us doing it um more sustainably so we can enjoy brats for as long as we can or is that just something that people have to give up what's what's the answer on that? I, I i don't know what the answer is but i i do know that you know people aren't gonna just because it may be you know in some abstract way in their mind good for the environment they're gonna go for um you know what do they call that beyond they're not gonna have a, a soy burger instead of a, a chuck burger i and and i I don't know what what the answer is to that, but I, I think you got to move in in the real world and and make modest and reasonable steps forward. And I think, from my perspective, the most important thing for for me is to get people to understand that the system that we have right now, where we're main we're straight lining this circle of life and and 
it's it's ending up with pollution in the waters is not sustainable, and and we're going to have to live within our means um, sooner soon enough. I mean, I'm not saying 10 years, but it could be in 10 years, or it could be in 30 years, or it could be the end of the century. Who knows? There's so many problems coming at us. You can get overwhelmed thinking about, well, what you know, what's the solution? What can I do? What can we make people, other people do? And, um, you know, I, I guess I'll be an optimist and think that stuff can work out if people get educated and they, they realize, you know, the costs and the benefits to the, the current economic systems that we have, whether it's shipping and paper mills or, uh, or dairy. I mean, we're really kind of in the hotbed, aren't we, as far as? <laughs> yeah, we are. You know, we are. So many resources and so, you know, economically and environmentally, and they, they're just sometimes on a collision course. Well, and also you get into this weird thing where uh, it can be industry versus industry. You know, you have the fishing industries in the Gulf of Mexico are not happy with the farmers all the way up the Mississippi Basin because they see those dead zones and that's what they that's what they're talking about. That's where it came from, you know. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, this th stuff will come to a head. A, a big head, you know, pretty soon. It's do we want to get in front of it and and try and do something? And there are a lot of people doing things, but I, I mean, I I think in general, it's it's kind of dealing with that simple concept of the tragedy of the commons, you know, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. that once it's not on my, once it's everybody's problem, it's not my problem, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, you just got me thinking with the dead zone and, and the Gulf and, and the farms feeding that upstream. One thing that, that I think we can do is rethink uh, our the ethanol mandate that we have, because it blew me away uh, doing some research for this phosphorus book that 40% of the corn we grow goes, goes into ethanol. 50-some percent of the corn we grow in Iowa goes into ethanol, which is really you know nobody's happy with that except for the the industries that are benefiting handsomely from it because ethanol can be hard on car engines and fuel efficiency and uh it takes a lot of energy to make it and you know a lot of assessments say there really is no net uh environmental benefit to this stuff it's it's neutral or it's a negative and yet it persists and it's just you look at this and it's like why is this persisting and a big reason is if you want to be president of the United States, you got to show well in Iowa, you know, at the, at yeah. the beginning of the campaign yeah. season. And and you're not going to do well in Iowa if you don't, you know, pledge allegiance to ethanol. And so those those are some things. And you know, I I'm I'm trying not to be a political person in this uh, book writing business, but there are some things that you think, well, this this deserves. I'm not going to say do this or that. I'm going to say take a hard look at this. And see if he can think of something, you being politicians or academics, environmentalists, or in, in industrialists. Look, is there a better, more efficient way? And I think with, with ethanol, most people would agree that there there is. And that's to rethink the mandate. Yeah, and that's one, that's one of those where you see, uh, though we are so divided in these political times, there is one thing that everyone will agree on, and that's ethanol uh and politically speaking or i don't know a president ever who has gone against that in you know is there one no, someone no. who's made it to the white house who's not uh, to the white house i think ted cruz in like 2008 2012 he came out against ethanol in iowa which um was interesting and he still he still won 
narrowly, but he oh, didn't. Oh yeah, win. he did win in, in Iowa. Yeah. Now, yeah. Do, do you, are you, is this um is this your next book? Is it on ethanol? No, no. I mean, there's a lot of ethanol in this in this phosphorus book. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, there there is. Yeah, but um. But it, How about I, you? What, what's your next? What's your next book? I don't know. I don't know. But the ethanol thing, uh, it it fascinates me because, um, I mean, here's the, the the thing with like farming. You don't want to piss off farmers because it, I know enough of them to know that they work their asses off. They know um, their land. They care for it. All this and that. And you don't want to lump all farmers into one yes. category. And that's what they feel happens to them. So it's tough talking about ethanol, which is, you know, they've done enough studies on it. We kind of get the the deal now. We we sort of see for what it is. Um, and uh, it's, it, yeah, it's only popular for a small portion of the population. And yet it, it drives so much of our current society, literally, you know, so it's, well, how how do how do we get to that place you know because i feel like it happens again and again with our relationship to business and the environment where the logical thing does not happen because we trade off you know short-term economic gains for long-term economic gains and environmental gains it, i mean that's just human nature i think isn't it yep yeah it is and you know i guess any kind of solution starts with an educated public and an educated uh, body politic, which is becoming increasingly dicey. Um, yeah, it, it's it's educating the public. And then um, and then, but and then there, I feel like there's something else. It's it's almost like we have to change the way our brains are evolutionarily made, because though we have the logic to know that this is better for our children and our grandchildren, we still think like we're cavemen. We're like, just get me food today. Just get me money today. Just get me higher stock dividends or whatever that crap is today. You know, yep. that's what's driving well, our society. Yeah. And, and But then there are moments that you can have, you know, a tectonic shift. And, and one of those was in the Great Lakes on Lake Erie, uh, the Cuyahoga River, specifically when that caught fire in 1969. Oh, yeah. It actually caught fire a bunch of times before that. But something about that that fire just all of a sudden people just kind of like you know they all looked up from you know their busy days and like what in the hell are we doing here you know water is burning um we've we've got to do something and what we did was we got the clean water act and as i mentioned before the paper companies are still churning out paper i mean we're still using toilet paper and um but now you know we can fish in the water no, you're right. I mean, the Cuyahoga River is a perfect example for what I'm talking about, because how many times have we heard about climate change, you know, or the dead zones or whatever it is? We've heard about it a million times. I, I forget that. They had the river caught on fire. And that wasn't even the worst fire in 1969, was it? No, there, there was. Yeah, there was just something about that. That one burn. I mean, I think people, they were just there was. An awareness building and um, an ethic too. I mean, the Clean Water Act was passed under under Nixon, and so it was a bipartisan issue. And so, you know, you, people wonder what's the next Cuyahoga moment. And some people thought that this Toledo situation, where all of a sudden, wait a minute, we live next to you know twenty percent of the world's surface freshwater, and we can't we can't turn on our faucets, and 
you know, this is, this is the, whatever we're getting, the price is too high for the system. And um, there is, you know, there, there in Wisconsin, there's a lot of farmers do working with regulators up in Brown County in particular on better land use uh, management practices. Um, and in Ohio, you know, they're, they're, it's taken some lawsuits, but they're, they're moving toward, you know, figuring out how to become a, engineer a more sustainable uh, agriculture system. So maybe sometimes it happens incrementally, but sometimes it takes, it takes a bad event or maybe a book you know, yeah. <laughs> to raise public awareness. No, that's, that's a little self-centered perspective, but you know, uh, Silent Spring did a lot to rein in. I mean, that's, that's a big reason we got a lot of the environmental regulations and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination comparing with the work that I'm doing to Rachel Carson's. She was a scientist, for example, but, um, no, but, but I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I cut you off. No, I mean, I just, I, I just think, yeah, it, it's just, I think it's an incremental kind of process. And then all of a sudden something tips the tips, the scale. And that's something in 1969 was the Cuyahoga river. And I don't know what it'll be for our, our modern agriculture system, but again, you know, we, we've got to figure out a better way to do it. So we're not poisoning our waters to put food on our table or gas gas ethanol in in our tanks yeah yeah and i i think that um nobody is getting down on um farmers when they say that but i i think it's it's we all have to realize that we are all footing um footing the bill for something and when we're all paying for something that only somebody is benefiting from financially or by ease of doing their thing well that's not right either so we're just trying to get to a uh more fair thing for everybody but i think it's almost like once people start treating the commons kind of as their own you know because we're in such an individualist society you know so like once you start seeing as these things really impacting your um like PFAS, for instance, I know we're wrapping up here, so I'll, I'll keep this quick, but PFAS is another good example of like, these are forever chemicals and they're forever in your water. One company made billions uh, producing it or multi-millions, I don't know how much they made, but then now we're paying for it because we're drinking these, yeah. these chemicals forever, you know, because you, and, and at the same time, the PFAS are, helpful in creating the things that they've created just like phosphorus has given these a lot of food you know so that it's it's all this double-edged sword stuff it's it's just tough to navigate in the mind yeah but uh not to muddy the waters we do have to do something about it and make it more efficient i don't want to like say well there's nothing we can do no there's a whole lot yeah. that we can do you know yeah, no, it just, it, it all starts with just, you know, getting people to understand what's going on, why, and how we might be able to do it better, or why we should try to try to do it better. Yeah. And yeah, and so that's, that's a function of journalism, and it can be a function of all and uh, comedy. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. It's just, and it, it, like I said early on, you know, when I wrote the Great Lakes book, I didn't want to put a black hat on anybody. I wanted to just like explain the context of the decisions that were made that are having, you know, a serious and, and dreadful uh, effect on us today and, and move forward from there. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not pointing fingers, it's shining lights. That's really what I think of it. 
Yeah, and I you you wrote it in in that way too, and um and I think it's it's I really enjoyed it. I I thought it was great. And by the way, where where can people uh get your uh books? Uh, the Death and Life of Great uh, the Great Lakes. That's a New York Times bestseller. And um, can you get them at the same place? Do you have a website? Um, I don't have a website. And and the Phosphorus book will come out in March. The oh, that's not out yet? No, that's a, like a, it, they call them advanced reader copies. So they, oh, that's you know, awesome. Many, yeah, so that's just, uh, there's there's a lot. Of, I don't know how many are out there floating, but there's a lot of typos and such. And <laughs> it kind of oh, kills okay. me every time I see them. Well, but, I, um, I'm not finished with that one yet, but I haven't noticed it, which says a lot about okay, me. Okay. Good, good. Um, so that'll come out in March. And then the Great Lakes book, you, you know, you can get it at any bookstore in town. I like Boswell's. That's not far from where I'm sitting in this car. But uh, Amazon, you know, the the usual places. Yeah. So. Awesome, man. Well, th thank or, you. Or, or one thing you can find them probably all over the campus at UW because I'll leave you, I'll leave you with this. I think it was 2018. They picked it as the big read, so every freshman got uh, a copy of it, right? Yeah. And so, so there's like seven thousand freshmen or something, and then they they bought like a double that for just university purposes, and that you know that was more than I thought I'd ever sell to begin with, and so I felt pretty good. But then my daughter goes to school there. She was telling me she's like, you know, I call that a doorstopper. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't believe where these books are ending up. <laughs> so, <laughs> A little old doorstopper. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it opened up a few eyes. But um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us in your minivan by one of those great lakes. Appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Have a great day. All right. We'll talk to you soon. And that was my interview with Dan Egan, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you uh, check out uh, his book. Go to a, a local bookstore first if you can find it. Always support them. But The Death and the Life of the Great Lakes. And uh, his new book is called The Devil's Element, um, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. And he is on Twitter at Dan Patrick Egan at Dan Patrick Egan. Of course, you can also follow the Cripescast at Cripescast. Um, subscribe to our Patreon, charliebarons.com slash Patreon. Patreon.com slash Shoot, I always screw it up. Thank you, Colleen. And uh, a big thanks we to Colleen. We should make that into a t-shirt. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's like Charlie Barons, like Four people out. would buy it. <laughs> I would buy it. <laughs> uh, a big thanks to Colleen for um, being the executive producer of this and Hannah for being a great... Uh, editor of the Cast. You guys do a wonderful job. Thank you very much. Could not do it without you. Thank you. Everybody else, watch out for deer. So roll out the barrel and get the band brewing. Life's got you down. Just keep her moving. It's on Wisconsin. The Badgers say it's the old Wisconsin Jubilee. You know, sometimes when you're ice fishing, you put your foot in the walleye hole and go ass over tea kettle and you think you're done no you gotta keep her moving 